Hi everyone, I'm Mary Morton, and welcome to Gathering Ground. Gathering Ground is a semi-weekly podcast where with each new episode, a special guest and I will discuss what it means to survive and thrive in the nonprofit industrial complex. On this episode of Gathering Ground, we're excited to welcome Saul Flores. At the time of our recording, Saul was transitioning out of her position as the executive director of La Casa Norte, and now is the new deputy governor for the state of Illinois. Welcome to Gathering Ground, Saul. So happy you're here. Yay! Thank you. Thank you, Mary, for having me. Oh, absolutely. This is a very exciting time for you yes. and for the organization. So, And we're going to talk about all that. So let's start by giving folks a little bit of your background. How did you come to the executive directorship of La Casa Norte. Yeah. Well, Mary, you know, I always start with, uh, it's so important to understand where we come from. And so I grew up in a family of service. I'm Puerto Rican. Uh, my parents and grandparents came to Chicago from the island in the 50s and 60s. We all lived together and they just demonstrated for us what community was, what family building was. My grandparents were foster care parents. And over the course of 20 years, they fostered tons of kids. They adopted four kids. Wow. My aunts and uncles and mom were involved in the student union movement and the anti-war movements. And my very first memory of service is when I was about seven years old and my mom participated in this organization called Little Sisters of the Poor. And so we had this adopted elderly woman and we'd go visit her. And of course, it was always on Saturday mornings. I wanted to watch cartoons (laughs) and my mom would be like, get your ASS (laughs) out of the bed. We're going to go visit Margaret. And I thought, wow, I don't want to be here. You know, and as a kid, I was afraid of seniors. And I had that one moment We'd probably been visiting her about two months, and Margaret pulled me to the side and said, Soul, if I'd had a granddaughter, I wish she'd be someone like you. And what I got in that moment was love between human beings and service. Uh, and it felt powerful to me. And since then, I've just followed the footsteps of my family. And so it's no wonder why why and how I came to do service at La Casa Norte. Well, I have to say that, of course, I didn't know some of that about your background, but our yeah. backgrounds are very similar because I grew up in a, in a family where... Yeah, weekends, uh, we were not uh, playing in most cases, right? You know, because my mother... Marches. Yeah, marches, rallies, rallies, community meetings. And uh, I really grew up in a family where it was either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And that idea that service is the rent we pay for living. And so there's some work for you to do. And I started, like you, at a very early age. So I think that really does have so much to say about, you know, where we go and what we end up doing. So you got to La Casa Norte in 2002. In 2002. Yep. So I'm just celebrating 17 years of service. And I met our two founding board members in a church basement. We all know what these church basements look like, right? Got a lot of heart, (laughs) but the basement looks terrible. (laughs) West side of Chicago, February 02. We hadn't seen the sun in 35 days. And I met these two men and they shared this mission with me. And Mary, for me, it was a moment of stepping out on faith. And so as we talk about what it means to be an executive director to lead in these roles, your mission alignment has to be first and foremost. And for me, I said yes to this role because it called to who I am. It called for an opportunity for me to live and work my values of love and justice. Well, just and just a little step back, what were you doing right before you started La Casa North? Yes. So I, it was, you know, I told you about this family of service that I grew up in and out of school, I went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers. That's what I thought. And right. I did management yeah. consulting yeah. and it was fantastic. My first, you know, job out of college, I made more money than my mother and uh, felt lots of corporate and racial discrimination and started to feel like, well, this isn't quite aligned with what I want to do. And as I started to look for other opportunities, 9-11 happened. I got laid off Mm, Uh, and I just started volunteering. And that's how I met these folks at my local church. And so you met them at the church. They were just Two staff yep. when you took over. Not staff, founding board members. Founding board yes. members. So, you so didn't they had this idea. Staff. We had no staff. No, they had this idea. They'd been doing guerrilla fundraising for 10 years, just in their living rooms and on the weekends, and said, we really believe in the mission of working with young people who are experiencing homelessness. And so I said, yes, I want to help. I didn't know quite what that meant. I just thought, oh, while I'm looking for a job, I'm going to volunteer with you, which is why I often tell folks, you want to move into the nonprofit sector? Go volunteer. That's exactly in right. my volunteering for seven months, I got three job offers. That's right. Right now, I'm not that talented, but <laughs> but well, it's, it's a real. It it's an opportunity for exposure and to learning and understanding Absolutely. the mission. So they said, "Look, Sol, we really think you should be the founding executive director." I said, "Maybe." <laughs> Very scared, right? It's a big, big thing to and you go don't out know what on. you don't know. 
That's right. And July 1st, 2002, we opened our doors. I was smart enough to know we had to hire a social worker because I am not one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember Mary feeling like, I'm so scared someone's going to come knock on the door and ask for services, and who am I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And sure enough, that happened. <laughs> and, and so what did you do, though? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I learned this very quickly. Uh, I come from a family of really resourceful women. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, they're big talkers, and they just figure stuff out. And I went and I asked for help, and I know how to do that really well. And that was almost 17 years ago. And over the course of this time, we have grown our mission um, to serve young people and families, confronting homelessness so that they can have the life of their dreams. Well, that's an incredible story. You are now cutting the ribbon on a $20 million facility. Yay. How did that come about? Yes. You had to raise the money, then we you had, had to raise build, the, money. The, build uh, the building. Tell oh us a little goodness. bit about that. Well, I, you know, there's a saying, uh, it's an Americana saying, I can't say it in Spanish, but it's like <laughs> Murphy's Law, right? We've heard that. So I said, well, not only did Murphy's Law show up, but his cousins, his grandmother, <laughs> his TTs, his godkids, <laughs> like everything that could go wrong and get in our way has on this project. But I think our perseverance is proof to how important the work is and how committed all the people that it took to get this done. So seven years ago, we set out, we did a new strategic plan as an organization, and we said, we want to do more. We want to be true to our core competency of housing people. We know how to do that, and we think housing is a human right, and we want to work on all these other ancillary services that we know are important to keeping people housed, like health care, mm-hmm. nutrition, a safe place for young people to be. Uh, So we went out into the world and we shared this really big dream. Uh, And here's the thing. When you're talking to people, when you're in the world of fundraising, no one wants to get on board with something small, with something average, with something mediocre. People want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And something that's going to be successful. That's what people buy into, right? It is not, oh, woe is me and there are many more homeless people. Well, yes, we all know that. But what what are you going to do that's really going to be successful. Exactly. And I think that's the innovative approach and in this project that we uh, put forth. So it took us seven years to raise the money. We had a lot of things get in our way. We had money given to us, money taken away from us. <laughs> uh, I tell this story because it's so true. I said, uh, for years, people would see me coming. I'm not kidding, Mary. Turn the other way. Oh, I believe it. Oh, I have similar. <laughs> I was asking. I was asking. I have donors, individual donor. I will not name uh-huh. names on this podcast uh-huh. who I dated in quotes, (laughs) right? Like cultivated that relationship for six years and still didn't give a dime. Uh, I had donors for six years that we cultivated. In the beginning, they say, let's see what you can do. And then the end, they came in in a big way. Uh, But here's 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 what it comes down to. To, Out of the $20 million, a big portion of it, about six and a half million, is private resources. Mm -hmm. And that was about 60 local Chicagoland families and just a couple of small foundations that got in and said, we believe in this. And the other $14 million is a mix of federal, state, and city money. So this is such a great example mm-hmm. of the public and private mm-hmm. sector coming together right. to come up with solutions that are investments for community, because it's not charity. That's that right. building going up is not about charity and those poor people. That's this right. is about investing in people right. so that they can then go be their best selves. And their best selves means working, going to school, contributing, becoming- A being, decent place yes, to live. And being leaders right. in the work. And isn't it something when you sometimes are working in different communities and people, because of internalized racism and and things we were just talking about uh, earlier, don't feel that they deserve something really nice, Mm, right? That you deserve to come to a place, whether it's a shelter or a healthcare center, you deserve to come into a facility that is clean and bright and is inviting. You deserve that. Well, and that's, I think, the basis of dignity that all all human beings want, expect, and deserve. And so if you, uh, you know, your listeners can go to our website and see what the building design looks like. We spent a lot of time on that. And one of the, so the the central feature to this new $20 million design is light. Mm -hmm. And light comes through in windows. Mm -hmm. And if you're in construction out there, you know windows mean dollar signs. (laughs) It's very expensive to put up light and windows, but we stay true to this because what that represents is transparency. It is us in community and community in us. And so if you drive by, if you walk by this facility, you're going to say, what's that? That looks, those look like high-end condos. What's that place? That looks like a fancy, you know, downtown business. Uh, What is that? Oh, 
That's where people in crisis are going. Mm -hmm. That's where people who are experiencing homelessness are going to get partnership to get out of this situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mary, you know, one of the things I'm so excited about over the next coming months, we're going to be um, finding families to move into the 25 apartments. Mm -hmm. And I just think, you know, I got to tell you, I'm 40 something. (laughs) I'm proud. I'm 45 years old and I'm proud. That's right. I've never lived in a brand new apartment. Ever in my life. And I've lived in wonderful apartments. But I can't imagine what a little girl or boy is going to come with their mom and say, Mom, we're going to get to live here? First. Yes. They will be the first family. Yes. And in a place that's beautiful, that's respectful, that's safe, you know, that is, you know, there's dignity at every moment uh, of their experiences there. So I'm really, really proud of that. That's incredible. Now talk a little bit about some of the wraparound services yeah. that'll be available. So uh, we're so excited. The The facility is both housing and community center. So in the community center, we're going to have a healthcare component, and we're partnering with another local Chicago organization called Howard Brown Health. And together, we are going to provide medical health care and behavioral health care services. The community in which this new facility is operating is considered a medical desert, so there's not mm. enough providers um, to provide health care. And we know it's c- critical to your success. The other component is a nutrition center. Where this place is located is a food desert, right? So again, we're thinking about food as medicine food and health in a holistic way. We're going to have a fresh market pantry where people can come and shop in quotes. It will be free food um, along with a cafe where hot, nutritious meals will be provided along with nutrition education. That is yeah. incredible. Yeah. Oh my God. It's and so it's exciting. really beautiful space. And the the last component, which we're also really proud of, it's not necessarily an expansion, but it's going to be a new space is our youth drop-in center. So we've been operating two youth drop-in centers for young people experiencing homelessness in Chicago. And this space is going to allow young people to come off the streets be safe, and then connect, right? So I want to get back into school, or I want to reconnect with a family member, or guess what? I ran away from two states away, and I want to get back there. Uh, Or I'm just, you know, it's cold outside. I just need somewhere warm to be tonight. Absolutely. So, Saul, you've had an incredible, uh, successful capital campaign. Yes. What did your board members do to help keep that going over the last seven years? Yeah, well, we would not be where we are today without board members. So board members kept us focused. They kept us going. They kept looking for opportunities. Um, and we just kept digging and asking, digging and asking. The other thing that the board did was help to support me as a leader, right? And understanding this is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, and we are going to have ebbs and flows. We're going to get money or we're going to get money taken away from us. The other thing that the board, and this did happen in our situation, is as we were nearing this sort of last year of fundraising, we had to make hard choices. And so you, you hear about this cannibalization of internal money where you're now asking donors for your operating money and for capital money. That's so that, right. that did happen to us in the very last mm-hmm. year. Um, and we struggled a little bit with that. And donors saying, look, I can pick. do one or the other. Yes. Pick. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, and we're in an election year. That's right. Yes. That's <laughs> And <laughs> yes. in Chicago. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so that was challenging, but the board really helped to support me. Uh, the board helped to lead the, the board helped to model. They were a yes at every turn. We said, let's try this. Let's try that. We may have to value engineer down. We might have to negotiate. Um, but they were patient and steadfast and uh, are incredible partners. That's incredible. And how large is your board? So our board is 16 individuals. 16 individuals. Yes. And there were, you know, Mary, there are members on our board who don't love to fundraise, who are like, that's not me. And if you ever say the word fundraise, they like shiver, mm-hmm. want to hide. Mm-hmm. And then I say, oh, can you go talk to your local church about, oh, I can go talk to my local church. Oh, can you ask them for, oh, I can ask them for. So as long as you don't call it fundraising. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's like whatever we need to call it. Yes. Right. Um, the outcome is likely going to be the same. Yeah. But as you know, we just have to bring people to it in a particular manner because we have been socialized not to talk about money. That's right. Right. And we have to stop that. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we have to start talking about money so that we can we can have more money for our, our projects, for our programs, for our organizations. We have to become more comfortable with money. And that is part of the work that we do at Morton Group in terms of talking to boards about fundraising, because as I'm sure you've heard people will say, I don't know anyone who has money. That's right. I'm afraid to raise money. Mm-hmm. And um, what will they think of me? Exactly. And, and, and suppose they say no. And our response is if they say no, then that's an opportunity for you to regroup 
and go back and ask again. Yes. And you always ask again, right? Unless yes. they say never come back and ask me again, <laughs> you ask again. Yes. There's no two ways around it. So that's, that's, right. that's really important work as well. What was happening with your staff through all the various uh, parts and phases of the yeah. campaign? Because I assume just as the sort of normal, um, um, you know, people coming on board, people leaving and, and you trying to have consistent voices in the work. Yeah. Well, and we, it's also very unique. I really do want to write a white paper or mini little (laughs) practitioner guide around this because, you know, our organization is also just 16 years old. We started this project seven years ago, right? And we were eight, nine years old saying we want to go do this really big thing that for a young organization, uh, was a huge, huge challenge and upward climb. Uh, about halfway through the campaign, we saw a shift in our leadership, and that meant uh, we'd had I'd had colli- colleagues that had worked at La Casa Norte for almost a decade, mm-hmm. and they had grown. They were incredible leaders in their own right, and they went to move on to lead other organizations and institutions and programs, you know, there was real growth for them. And so I saw a shift uh, and that was hard because I was like, we're still raising the money. We're still going to do this building. I need you here. And what I really got was, well, they were always going to be there because we're working in community and sector together. We're just not going to work underneath the same house anymore. Um, It's hard though, isn't it? It is hard. I mean, let's just stop there for a moment. It is really hard when you feel like you've invested in staff and at the same time, at least the kind of leader I've always tried to be is I invest in staff with the expectation they're going to move on. That's right. It's just the timing sometimes that I like to address. That's right. And I mean, ultimately, people have to make the best choices for themselves. Right. And we know if we do it again with respect towards the mission and respect towards each other, then we're going to continue to have great relationships. And I feel like I have great relationships with an incredible cadre of alumni now from La Casa Norte who are doing great things, um, not just in the city anymore. We've got alumna in Washington, D.C., alumna in Wisconsin, uh, and I'm sure that will continue to grow. So I feel proud about that. And, you know, all of them are excited about the the build is finally done. All of them are clear that they've been a part of this mm-hmm. and helped to move the needle forward. Uh, it, it really did take the proverbial village. Absolutely. <laughs> so when we think about the work overall and you think about what you've accomplished at uh, the organization, is the building what you will, would say, this is what I'm most proud of? Or what are you most proud no, of? No, no. I. So here's the thing. And I, we were just we had a staff meeting yesterday. And we were in this our new beautiful space. And it was our first uh, large format staff meeting in our beautiful new conference center. And so we're sitting there and it's like, and how many staff new. do you have now? So we have 85 staff members. And you started with two. Okay. <laughs> yes. Incredible. Yes. And so we're sitting there and now all staff members are there because we have overnight and third shift workers, but uh, about half of us were there and, you know, we're smelling the new smell and looking at the beautiful white walls. And, and as I was sharing a story, I said, we're so happy to be in this new space and everything that's going to do it. But these walls, that table, this floor, that's not mission. The mission is in inside each of us. It's in our heart. It's in our minds, our spirit, our guts. Like this is where the mission takes place. And you can do it in a hovel, like how we have, like many grassroots nonprofits. We've been in a lot of basements and mm-hmm. abandoned warehouses mm-hmm. and living rooms. Churches. And we do it. Yes, uh-huh. churches. Uh-huh. And you can also do it in a brand new 50,000 square foot facility. So wh- when you ask the question, what am I most proud of? I'm most proud of the group of people who've come together to create this mission and bring it alive. I'm most proud of the people, the young people, Mary, the moms, the dads, the families who've come forth to say, I want to partner with La Casa Norte. I need a mentor, an advocate, a coach to help me inform my decisions as I make the best decisions in my life moving forward. That's what I'm most proud of, that these groups of people got to come together called volunteers, board, staff, clients in this mission. It's an incredibly inspiring story. And I think it's a story that um, people will love to hear about because as you could imagine in this climate, we need success stories and we need to know that it is possible. It it is possible to dream big and uh, for the dream to become a reality. And that's absolutely what you've demonstrated here. We're gonna take a short break. This is Mary Morton on Gathering Ground and we've been talking with Sol Flores. We're back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Gathering Ground. If you have any questions about any of the topics that we've discussed on Gathering Ground, please feel free to drop us a line at mary 
at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. Again, that's Mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm Mary Morton. Welcome back to Gathering Ground. In this episode, we are speaking with Saul Flores, who is the executive director of La Casa Norte. Saul, I want to talk a little bit about being a woman of color in leadership, what that's been like uh, since you've been doing it for the last 16 or 17 years. And you didn't come from another organization that was primarily people of color. So how did you come in and and really um, develop your leadership style. Yeah, thank you. You know, I shared a little earlier about my family and growing up in a family of service. Well, most of that family was strong Afro-Latina women. <laughs> so as I think about moving forward in life, I know that their blood runs through my veins, but it's filled with their courage, their hope, their knowledge, their wisdom, right? All the things that they've had to endure. And so I bring that with me, right? And I think it's really important. One of the things that I didn't have um, 16 years ago in terms of language was my values, right? And so today I can clearly say I lead with the values of love and justice. Love as the... You you know, the, the promise of humanity. Like, Mary, I actually do love you, but like, Vince, this guy, I just met him. But I love the <laughs> promise of Vince, right, as human beings. And then justice for doing what's right and what's just. And I think, um, particularly for leaders of color, particularly for women, this is what we know how to do, right? Because we've grown up in these types of communities that have infused this in us. So leading with our values is so important. Now, have I experienced every sort of ism? Yes. <laughs> have I been in rooms where uh, not only I'm the only person of color, but I'm also the only woman? Sure. Have I had to have conversations with um, donors and folks who are of a different political persuasion than myself? And so we'll talk mission and nonprofit, and then they'll want to talk politics too. And inside, my politics are not the same as their politics, but how have I had to uh, negotiate and navigate uh, all that? And, and it goes back to my in my individual identity. So I feel secure about who I am and leading with who I am when I meet young people and they say, oh, well, you know, in these white organizations, how do you be you? And I said, well, you can only be you. And it's when you stop being you that you come off as inauthentic. When you stop being you, people are clear they can't get close to you, right? That there is a gap. People feel close to me and they feel the mission because I've worked to remove that gap. I am fully me, right? <laughs> and that's the the only person I know how to be. And so from what you're saying, being your authentic self yes. has been the key. Yo, absolutely. Yes. That was long and convoluted. Yes. <laughs> no, no, being no. your authentic self is clear. It, it, and it has to be. So if you're leading nonprofit right today, you have to be number one, mission aligned. This thing you must live in your veins. It's the thing that like gets your panties in a bunch, your you know fire in your belly that brings tears to your eyes, right? So mission alignment is number one. Um, and then secondly, you have to make sure that you're putting mission first, right? You can't get in the way, but you have to feel comfortable with your own identity enough to not get in the way. So let me give you a clear example, Mary. I grew up poor, right? And working class. We had moments where we had government assistant food. You know, the electricity was cut off right? There were friendly rodents, right? So we grew up real working class. And now I've had the opportunity over the last, you know, my career at La Casa Norte to be in the homes and the workplaces of millionaires and billionaires, right? And so a very, very different experience. But what we can align on is mission, right? And so I don't have to put my own experience of growing up poor and judge them for not and or vice versa, feel like I'm taking in their own judgment, right? And I think that's what we do a lot to ourselves. So what has kept you grounded? Uh, my family. <laughs> so my family keeps it real. Uh, and I'm also clear about my role. So one of the things I've also noticed, you know, and I just gave you that example of, of being in the homes and workplaces of millionaires and billionaires, I get like, it's actually been a privilege to be a facilitator, a negotiator, a bridge builder, right? Between my community and this mission and our clients and those folks who are on the other side as key stakeholders, right? Now you can remove donor for a second because we were talking about fundraiser, fundraising. You can put in their elected official. You can put in their media person. So these folks don't know who we're serving and my opportunity is to connect them and to educate them and to do it with grace. Now there's gonna be some judgment involved, right? If, if you're like our current president. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you're just someone who says, you know what, I never met a black trans woman. 
what what is what does that mean? I, I don't know any undocumented people. Um, how did they get here? Right. So if that's a real question, then my opportunity as leader for this organization is to educate and build bridges so that people get to authentically know other people. And I'm sure that you've had similar experiences as I have, that when people know each other, right, it is about the sharing of the hearts and minds. We can break down some of those barriers and challenges. Yes. The challenge is getting someone to be open enough to have those experiences is what that's I right. found. That's right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I've had throughout the years, you know, and of course the community in which La Casa Norte started, we work in several communities today, but where we started is Humble Park. And, you know, Humble Park has had, you know, a history of amazing families and businesses and also some, you know, gang life and, you know, drug issues. But over the last decade, it's also experienced a lot of gentrification. But, you know, a while back people would say, well, is, you know, can I park my car in front? And I said, well, I parked my car there, so I think that's where you should park your car, too. <laughs> and, and so, yes, yeah, so those microaggressions, <laughs> yes. as we would refer to them, happen on a fairly regular basis, I would assume. I mean, I certainly experience them. How are you handling those when you're in the middle of talking to a billionaire? Yeah. And because this is, this is real, right? Yeah. Somebody who has the ability to close the deal for yes. you. Yes. But they've also said something that is so extraordinarily offensive, and they have no idea that they have done that. What's been your reaction? Yeah. You know, I think being straight, just being straight and transparent. And I think you can do it with some grace. And if the person is not open and accepting to that, and I have found 99.% of the time they are rather than say, oh, excuse me, I didn't know that, or I wasn't clear, or that wasn't my understanding. But I think just being straight and being like, well, actually... Not everyone who's experienced mental illness has had that experience, right? Or not everyone who's who's experiencing homelessness um, is a substance user, right? And, and guess what? You know, that mom, uh, there's a lot of reasons why she's not married. Exactly. So here's a couple of um, pieces I want to bring forward from a very recently released port, uh, report from the Building Movement Project. And they do extraordinary research and provide tools and trainings uh, for nonprofits and the people that they serve. And so they have a, a report that was released, I think about two years ago, called Race to Lead. And it was really looking at the lack of leadership from folks of color in nonprofits and why that is. And now they have just recently released a report that is specifically on women of color. Mm. And so here are a couple things I'd love to get your reaction to. Um, first, racial and gender biases create barriers to advancement for women of color. Women of color have reported being passed over for new jobs or promotions in favor of others, including men of color, um, white women, and white men with comparable or even lower credentials. And certainly we see that in our work as consultants when we're doing executive searches, um, it is not unusual, for instance, for some for us to work on a, an executive search and really have to help the candidate understand how they can negotiate their package. Yes. Because no one has shown anyone how to do that. And I find that particularly uh, women and folks of color don't have those experiences of, you know, you actually can ask for something else. They, <laughs> yes. they, they wouldn't even it wouldn't even occur to them to do that. Have you experienced any? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I went for a few, uh, almost five years without um, any pay, a pay increase. I'm just going to give it to you straight, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I went about five years without a pay increase. And part of it was just like I said, well, I just got to continue to do a good job and they'll notice. And they'll notice. And they'll notice. And then what, what did, what I noticed then, Mary, in my life was like I had more responsibilities. There were more things that I wanted to do for my family. Uh, and, and it was actually two of my mentors and all the leaders listening, everyone should have mentors. That's right. My mentor said, well, you've got to actually ask, Saul, right? And even in asking, I kept thinking, well, you know, they'll notice. I should, you know, it should be smaller. We it start to equivocate. This. Oh, absolutely. And then when I could see it, that actually I wasn't just negotiating for myself. I was negotiating for the organization because what this did was help put a place marker to say, this is the worth of our leader. Today, it happens to be Saul. Five years from now, we don't know who it will be. Ten years from now, we don't know who it will be. And so this is actually a capacity building mechanism for organizations to make sure we're getting compensation right, particularly for leaders of color. Uh, and so when I saw that and it was like turning the page in the book, I actually asked for 25% more. That, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> well, here's the other thing. But yeah. you're also... 
then leaving the organization in a particular manner for the person who comes after you, right? Yes. So that they won't have to really go in in the particular manner that you have and and they'll come to the organization at a different level. We, for instance, don't ever ask what someone's salary history has been because, again, we know that folks of color and uh, women are most often underpaid. And yes. so organizations may think, well, they were only making 100000 but we were prepared to pay 140 but maybe we can get away with paying 100 because that's what they've been making. That is not okay. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think the other piece of it is uh, we feel like we'll get noticed for our work or that we should be rewarded once work is complete, but work is incremental, right? I just told you we worked on this building for seven years. And in my mind, I said, oh, well, the building's got to be up and fully functional before I ever get a raise. And it was one of my mentors that reminded me, said, but wait a second, it didn't get done in a day or a year, did it? It took you seven years. Right. So hence you have to be compensated and, and, and the organization needs to understand that. That's right. Here's another point from the study. Um, Education and training are not enough to help women of color advanced, uh, or advance, I should say. Women of color with the highest levels of education are the most likely to be in administrative roles and the least likely to hold senior leadership positions. Women of color also are paid significantly less compared to men of color and white men and more frequently report frustrations with inadequate salaries. So you've just talked about that particular piece in your own life. Um, It is something that, again, because we do executive searches, we see a lot. And even when I'm just talking to folks who maybe aren't going to be in executive search but are looking for positions, I'm often saying, "What what do you need to live on? That's what we need you to ask for. Yes. Don't go in trying to second guess what they'll think is okay. That's where we get into some problems, right? We're trying to maneuver and think, well, maybe they'll think I'm this. No, go in and talk about your worth. Yes. Because if you don't do it, who's going to do it? And this idea that I, I think you're not, you're certainly not alone when we think, well, someone will notice what an extraordinary job I'm doing. Yes. Well, they'll notice and tell someone and then keep moving, yeah. right? It may not <laughs> yes. actually trans, transmit into you getting uh, an additional raise or, or whatnot. You have to, we have to believe in ourselves enough Absolutely. To talk about our value. And and really, there's no one else that can do that for us like us. That's right. And I think in the nonprofit sector, I mean, there's also the domino and trickle effect, right? So where you are, then the people beneath you, then your management team, right? It's all about bringing all boats up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm clear, you know, even in that moment of negotiation with my salary and the board was completely supportive, you know, and I got to yes so fast, I couldn't believe it, right? And they were like, well, of course, right. you should be earning this much money. Of course. Uh, and then in the next moment, I said, oh, great. And then I remembered, oh, right, I lead fundraising. Uh-huh. So there's also uh-huh. just the reality right. of, you know. You know what the organization can that's bear. Right. That's <laughs> At the right. end of the day, you're that's not right. asking for something that's impossible. That's right. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when you asked and they said, oh, absolutely, you may have thought, hmm, maybe I should have asked for a little bit more. Because when I go out and speak to a donor, and uh, I remember I was doing an ask um, a few months ago and uh, asked the donor for $5,000. And the donor was so quick to say yes and went to reach for their checkbook as though they, I thought, oh, we should have asked for more. Yes. <laughs> That's a sure sign. Uh, we didn't ask for quite enough. But you know what? We'll do it again. That's and, right. And we'll increase the ask. I think sometimes, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're we're not, being, uh, we're not being outrageous, right, when we're speaking to a donor for the first time. And likewise, when you're getting the board used to you asking, yes. right, because that became something that had not happened, but now it was going to happen. They were going to have to get used to you saying, I want an annual or biannual or whatever the case may be, raise, right? I want yes. my review. I want to raise because this is what good nonprofit management is about. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So when you think about other women of color that you've worked with, how have their experiences and yours compared? Because your organization, your staff, is it primarily folks of color? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, it's it's and it's changed obviously throughout the years, but it's primarily people of color a lot along with people who identify as being LGBTQ. Um, And that's also been very important to us uh, as we reflect what our community looks like. I mean, there was one point, Mary, that our leadership team had three people that I, there were four people on it and three of them identified as LGBTQ and I identify as being uh, heterosexual. And so I was like, well, I am outnumbered here. (laughs) Uh, But so uh, diversity in many ways is so important to us. And yes, and I've identified whether it's you've experienced discrimination through sexual discrimination or 
what you look like, right? I've worked with leaders in my organization that are women that happen to be extra tall or extra curvaceous, right? And there's a whole fat shaming that happens in our society. And then certainly um, women of color. One of the things I'm really proud of is that in our development shop, we have uh, a leader of color there, uh, a Latina woman, uh, and that she's like a rare unicorn, right? There's not a lot of directors um, at that level. Of development. That's right, who are Latina. And we have two other Latino associates working in development. In the pipeline. That's right. I love it. That's yeah, so but, important. But we have taken a grow your own approach. That's right. Um, and that's particularly important. And, and as we've recruited new leaders, you know, we just hired, brought on a new CFO, um, he's a young African-American gentleman. You know, we're so excited about that, you know, and we've had leaders of color in that space, uh, but we've not yet had an African-American uh, man. And so it's been so important to us to, to have that and make sure that our um, administration and leadership is reflected like the people that we serve. And I think you said something, um, or at least I'm reading into what you're saying, that you have to be intentional about oh, this Oh, yes. Okay, yes. If I didn't say that, yes, <laughs> people, you have to be I intentional. Think people think that it just happens and people no. fall down from the sky. No. And it's the same thing that I say when we're talking about our consulting group. I said our intentionality around who's doing the work is part of our business model. Yes. That didn't just happen by yes. accident. Uh, Every person was picked for a particular reason in terms of the gifts that they bring and the communities they represent because we wanted to have that diversity and all that it brings. But as you know, people are often nervous about that, right? They're a little scared about all the difference. And Mm -hmm. we want people to know that difference makes it better. Yes, absolutely. Well, difference difference makes it better. It makes it more inclusive. People are heard. You're more successful. uh, And it's actually more fun. Absolutely. And, and and there's that, right? We yes. actually can have fun doing this work, yes. uh, doing all of this work. And I think um, we just have to remind ourselves of that. I mean, so we like to say we're, we work hard and we play hard. Yes. You know, both are very, very important. So we're going to take a turn here. Yes. And I know you have lots of exciting things going on, but there's one more thing we're going to talk about today on Gathering Ground. And that is about a new position that you will be stepping into as part of the administration of our new governor here, J.B. Pritzker. Tell us about that. Yes. So obviously, Mary, it's bittersweet to leave La Casa Norte Mm -hmm. right now as we're just finishing. And after 16 years of service there, I feel so proud of the work. Um, Governor Pritzker called me on a special day. I'll never forget it. January 6th, 2019. And it was Dia de los Reyes. And that's a Three Kings um, uh, holiday. And it's very popular in Latino culture. And so I'm at our church slash family party. It's always on a Sunday. Sunday. It's about nine o'clock at night on a Sunday and I see the phone ring and I know it's the governor and I sort of go to the other side of the restaurant and I say hello and he says hello Sol are you at a party because of course he can hear like reggaeton yes. music in the background <laughs> and he's like this woman's out on a Sunday night right on party. a school night <laughs> right before a school uh, night. <laughs> yeah so that my first you know couple moments of my next to be job offer were all about uh explaining to the governor how important Dia de los Reyes is uh in our community and in the uh the Feast of the Epiphany and, and the celebration and what this means uh, for our in cultural context. And then in the next moment, he said to me, so look, I uh, really admire your work and what you've done. And I want you to join our administration as a deputy governor um, with a portfolio of health and human services. Uh, and I was taken aback. And I told him, he called me at nine o'clock at night. So needless to say, I did not sleep all night. Oh my goodness. I got to tell you the stomach cramps I had, the anxiety I had over the next 48 hours. Hours as I was mulling this and thinking it. At and what this I, time, yes. right? As we get ready to open this yes. new $20 million building That's that I right. Am. And all the excitement of what we're doing and, yes. you know, whatever's my next phase. Yes. And the universe responds to action, right? Absolutely. That's something I learned. The universe responds to action. And a year ago when I ran for Congress and I raised my hand and said I wanted to do more, well, I didn't win that congressional race, but the universe <laughs> said, so you raised your hand already, Sol. Other people will notice. And one of the things um, that really touched me was uh, Governor Pritzker during his inauguration speech uh, on January 14th said, I want to make sure that every boy and girl in the state of Illinois sees someone 
that looks like them in my administration. And now some folks may just say, oh, well, great, that's just a line. But you know, as a woman of color, as an Afro-Latina, to me, that is so clear. Race has been ingrained in me since the moment I could say the word. I remember the first time I was called the N-word, and every time growing up, my mother said to me, how many other black people were in the room? How many other Latinos were in the room? Were you the only dark person in the room, right? So race has always been front and center. Um, and the governor has said he wants to make sure that he has the most diverse administration ever. Um, and so I feel really proud about that. So the work, there's so much work to do. Uh, uh, part of it is about rebuilding uh, the human services infrastructure here in this state. Um, and it's also about telling the narrative uh, and making sure that we have all of government working together um, for the people of the state. And so I feel really excited to transition out of La Casa Norte into this new role. Uh, there's a lot I have to learn, um, but just as I started in nonprofit and being a founding executive director 16 years ago, you, you know what you don't know and you go learn what you need to learn. Uh, and by the way, I'm really resourceful. Well, we've seen that time and time again. It, it will not be any different in, in, in uh, state government. I've, I've worked in city government, and um, I think people like us who have done other things before we get to um, public service in this manner bring so much with us that will really enhance uh, the folks that you're working with and the offices that you you know interact with. I, I think I, I'm looking forward to nothing but much more success from you. Thank you. Um, it's really, yeah, just an extraordinary time. How are you doing self-care? Because I think that's something that women of color and women in general don't do enough of. I do executive coaching. And every time I ask, uh, in particular, uh, a woman of color who is a CEO or an executive director, what are you doing for self-care? I have to say that maybe 60% of the time, the women actually just start crying because they are so completely overwrought and no one has asked them about mm. how are they doing. Yeah. Thank you. And yes, that's true. <laughs> And uh, one of the things that really keeps me grounded is my family. So actually, I live with my family. I live with my parents and my sisters and my 10-year-old niece. And I just love it. And I have friends that are like, don't you want more privacy? And I'm like... Sure, yeah, and I really just want to be with them. Um, so one, spending time together uh, really helps to ground me. I think the second thing is I have a really close group of girlfriends, uh, and that's important, and it's important that we get together and we just don't talk about work. Right? Exactly. We talk about everything except for mm -hmm. work. Uh, they also keep me very grounded uh, and also support me. And what I've really taken on for me personally, Mary, because I know in order to do this work up until now and what I'm going to have to do in the future, requires an enormous amount of physical health and well-being right. too. And so I shared with your listeners that I am 45 years old now on the other side of the decline. <laughs> uh, so I've really taken on um, over the last month uh, being very focused on my eating, being very focused on some physical movement. Uh, and, you know, it's just been 41 days now, but I feel great. And I know it's, it's, it's just... It's important to have that focus. You know, I'm clear for me, I grew up in a family of foodies. We love to eat. We love to cook. You know, I, there's nothing I don't like, right? Like all cuisines. I like everything. And so for me, food has really been the way that I've quelled anxiety. And and it means like when i happy, I eat. When I'm mad, I eat. When I'm sad, I eat. When I'm angry, I eat. I eat all the time. And I love food. And so it's about rechanneling some of that work. Yes. And it's important to do that with family, to do it with friends, Absolutely. to be in conversation conversation and to be conscious of, oh, I'm eating to nourish myself. Oh, I'm not eating to feed that thing. Absolutely. Well, I, that sounds like you, you, you've thought about that. You're, you're moving into this new position with that practice in place, which yes. will serve you well, because I think that's what happens. If you don't have a practice, you get into a situation where you're very stressed out and you have nothing yes. that can sustain you. Yes. Um, but if you develop the practice, if you can maintain it, then when things are completely over the top, which they will be, yes, <laughs> we already know that, right? Yes. They've already been and it will happen again. Yes. Then you have something to hold on to. And that is going to make all the difference because as I often say, we cannot take care of other folks that's if we're right. not taking care of ourselves. And, and you know, that's really hard for women. It isn't particularly hard, I think, for women of color Absolutely. because we're playing so many different roles in so many different uh, groups of people that we interact with. Okay. So before we close, Saul, we like to do a little... Um, 
little uh, question and answer period from our audience. And we have a couple of questions that I want you to weigh in on. So the first one is from Chris, uh, pronouns she or her from Wisconsin. And Chris asks, um, I would love advice on how to bridge the DEI convo with an all white, all cis, mostly het uh, board of directors and staff that resist talking about it. I think it's fairly common in nonprofits, but I'm getting super stuck. I'm sorry, super sick of being the token non-white, non-cis, non-het person and getting shot down during meetings or, or you know, just side at. If we can't talk about it, we can't fix it. Uh, Chris is absolutely right. Um, it is all about being in conversation. I think, Chris, it's also about be finding um, other champions. Um, so in large group settings like that, that may not work. Um, who can she find individually within the organization to help champion a different narrative and conversation? I think the other piece is... Um, can she find like other organizations, right, that could right. help in that effort? Uh, and then at some point, Chris has got to make a decision, right, mm -hmm. uh, where she wants to spend um, her life's energy and her commitment to mission. And if she doesn't feel that she can be the leader that she knows that she needs to be in this conversation at this organization, um, then she's got to move on. Right. Maybe time for um, a transition of some sort. No, I think that's absolutely right. And when we work with the organization, people often call us and say, you know, we want to have this conversation. We need to have these conversations. But it's exactly as Chris lays it out. I'm, I'm the only person pushing forward. And that's that's a very difficult place to be in. Um, I think those suggestions around uh, looking for another um, ally or accomplice in some cases in, in this conversation, as well as this idea about a partner organization, someone who knows the organization well, someone who yes. folks respect and would listen to, because it is really difficult. And we know we've been in this position of having to be tokenized, of having to be the one who has to speak up uh, about every offense, every microaggression. It is exhausting, um, but it's what we do all the time. And to your point, you know, you, you can only do so much of that. Yes. And so you you make some of these other um, avenues, you, you go down some of these other avenues and you try to get some other voices in the conversation. But to your point, it may not be the place for you. Yeah. And I think, you know, Chris is going to have to make some decisions and period, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, here's the thing. You have this one life to live. And if you've committed yourself to public service, I'm so proud of you. And I'm so thankful that you are in public service and your soul needs to be fed by the work that you're doing. We don't want to burn you out and we don't want you to leave our sector. So if there's somewhere else um, that's going to honor your spirit more, then that's where you need to be. And that's exactly what we're hearing. Um, certainly in the philanthropic communities, uh, there was a report released a few years ago that I've mentioned on an earlier podcast, um, the Exit Interview, and that was the Association of Black Foundation Executives, where they they found through their research that, in particular, black folks in philanthropic organizations are so not um, supported in many cases that folks are just not leaving a particular foundation, they're leaving the entire sector. Mm. And so that is why the majority of staff in foundations in this country are white. That is why 81% of people who lead foundations are white. And we've, we've got to see that change, right? It's, it, and, and so it's, it's starting very slowly to change. Uh, but this idea of not being able to speak your truth, right? Be your authentic self in the workplace is absolutely hampering some of the progress that we could see. Absolutely. So we're going to take one more question. Um, this is from Esther, uh, Esther, who's in Illinois. And she asks, um, I'm a middle management fundraiser at a nonprofit that works with male survivors of sexual assault. And part of my job is attending events and going on funder visits to suss out prospective donors to our organization. More than once, I've heard some of the funders that I'm supposed to be, in quotes, courting, make some not so great comments about our constituents. One in particular, joking, said, maybe we just need to get some of these guys gym memberships so they can bulk up and protect themselves. I know that this is wrong, since sexual assault rarely has to do with the person's ability to protect themselves. But I also know that our organization needs funding where we can get it. In a landscape where so many issues like this 
are misunderstood or joked about? How do we effectively fundraise while keeping our personal and organizational values intact? And this yeah. is, of course, references a little bit of what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. So Esther, I'm so sorry that you've had that experience because she's clearly committed and um, doing the work and for such an important mission. And you got to think about uh, because of how our society is, these poor male survivors that have come forward, right? That was already an act of courage and bravery um, to come forward and share their story. So I think it's like what I said before. I mean, uh, so there's the opportunity for grace. Uh, and part of it is, can she, Esther, share with someone, maybe f- perhaps further up the chain, um, to have a conversation with that donor? Here's the thing. Um, if the donor is really committed to mission, um, they're going to be okay with a, a, a heart-to-heart talk. Um, and I think also some donors are just ignorant and may not know. That's exactly <laughs> and, right. And, and so you've got to just tell the truth. You've got to be like, no, this is why this happens. And to say, like, rape is not about sex, Rape is about anger and, and control power. Mm-hmm. and power. And so having that conversation, there's so many misconceptions. And here's the other one thing I want to say about this. Here's another misconception. Just because you're, you have money and you're a donor doesn't make you smarter. Absolutely. And so we've got to get out of this power play between the fundraisers and donors, which says everything that comes out of a donor's mouth is, you know, straight from the lips of God. And uh, true. And true. That's right. And so I've often tried to make sure we always have a respectful relationship. Absolutely. But I know, Esther, this is part of your job too, is to educate the donor. We have got to educate donors and push back where we can. Um, and I get it. Uh, you also don't want to turn off a donor, but there's a way to do it that's not being rude, that's not being disrespectful, that's doing it with grace. And Esther can try and try. And Esther, ultimately, if it's not aligned with your personal values, you need to have this conversation with your manager and excuse yourself from working with this particular donor um, uh, because because ultimately it's it's not fair for her. Exactly. And and it's not just individual donors. Of course, it's also foundations, right? The relationships that you have with foundations certainly need to be honest and forthright. And that takes some doing because you it, it may not start that way just because of the power imbalance, right? You're going yes. to a particular funder for money, for a project. And certainly I think many of us have been socialized that you essentially want to do whatever they ask. And that's really a problem if it flies in the face of your values. Yes, absolutely. And so again, and, and education doesn't happen in one conversation either, though. That's, right. That's the thing. I mean, it takes time. People have to hear it in different ways. That's exactly right. And when we do our uh, racial equity work or for it's broader around diversity, equity and inclusion, we often talk about being on a journey. This is a you're not going to arrive at a destination. This work is ongoing. Right. Yes. And so we have to be in it for the long haul. And um, we want to ask people to join us on that work and on that journey. Absolutely. This has been extraordinary. We could talk for hours and hours, uh, but I just want to say congratulations Thank on all you. the success. It's very exciting. I can't wait to see the new building. And I am looking forward to uh, just an incredible uh, reimagination of what's happening in health and human services in, in the state of Illinois under your leadership. Um, this is Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, and we've been speaking with Saul Flores, who is the executive director of La Casa Norte, soon to be the deputy governor, one of the deputy governors for the state of Illinois. We are going to continue following you and, of course, being in contact with you, being in community with you and supporting all of your work. Wishing you much success. Thank you, Mary. And that does it for us today on Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton. We'll talk to you next time. On the next episode of Gathering Ground, we'll be speaking with Yolanda Caldera Durant, Vice President of Fund the People. You won't want to miss this incredible organization that has resources you can use right now. We'll see you next time on Gathering Ground.